Hi there. Welcome to Good Faith, the anecdote to internet poisoning. I'm your host, Ben Dreyfus. What is internet poisoning? Well, it's when you spend so much time online and on social media that you begin to think that real life is as nuts as the things that happen on the internet. The U.S. political system has a case of terrible internet poisoning. Everyone is online, and everyone is mad, and everyone is paranoid, and everything is catastrophic, and then in some number of decades you'll be dead, and that was your life. Not great. How do we fix this? Who the hell knows? But I think the first step is being less confident about our opinions. Social media, being in front of an audience all the time, it makes it very hard to admit how dumb we are. It's hard to admit that you personally don't know what the hell you're talking about, but it's also hard to accept that people you disagree with are just dumb as well. Because if they're dumb, they might not be evil. What fun is it being outraged at someone who isn't evil? I'm pretty dumb, you know, not in a Guinness World Record sort of way, but in an average bear way. I also tend to downplay panic. It's a defense mechanism or something. And in a time when everyone is panicking about everything, it served me well. But I'm also wrong a lot. Sometimes there are issues that I should have been more panicked about. So this podcast is going to be me talking to people who are smarter than me about issues they know about, about issues they care about, about issues they might be freaked out about. And we'll see if they can freak me out too. On this episode, I'm talking to Emily Dreyfus, a journalist who currently serves as a senior fellow at Harvard Shorenstein Center for Media, Politics, and Public Policy. She's an expert on media manipulation, disinformation, and misinformation, and the effects those things have on our political system. She also happens to be my sister. So she's a perfect guest to tap for a pilot. Emily Dreyfus, hi, how are you? <laughs> hi, Benjamin Dreyfus. I'm good, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm in a closet, hoping that the internet doesn't break. Welcome to the first episode of Good Faith. Thank you for being my guest. I'm really excited to be your guest, brother. So, Em, you are the reason I'm a journalist. You and I work in the exact same field and are on very similar beats. And mm -hmm. we both started working on books right around the same time. And mine never got past the idea phase and yours is coming out in a few months. <laughs> I mean, that's a very kind way of putting it in my, <laughs> you know, for me. You could say that I also worked on two books like a decade ago that no one ever wanted to buy. And this is my yeah. third attempt. No, 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 no. This was just an introduction into what's your book about and why don't you tell me about it and how people should buy it? The book is called Meme Wars and we recently changed the subhead, but the subhead is Meme Wars Inside the Online Battles Upending American Democracy. Mm, my stars. That sounds very serious. Well, it's interesting because it is serious, but it's also hopefully very funny and entertaining because the people who were launching meme wars over the course of a decade, which the book chronicles, were having a hell of a good time as they did it. And the way they made their meme wars effective was to make them really catchy and funny and provocative. So then what the book does is chronicles all of these offenses, goes into the kind of online forums and chat spaces where the people who were planning them organized their thoughts and like decided what would work and what wouldn't and shows just what their creative right. agenda To be clear, when I said it sounded serious, I meant the problem, not that your book was going to be boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like preempting boundaries. So what our book traces is kind of this feeling, you know, you see it all over the place, like people on Twitter, everywhere. People are just like, what happened to America? How did this happen? How are we so polarized? Like, we used to be able to have friends from the other side of the aisle. And we agreed on stuff. And our dad would put it like people used to be civil. And now they, <laughs> you know, they're not civil anymore, whatever that means. <laughs> then especially after the insurrection last year, January 6th, everyone was like, what on earth? Like, holy mother of Jesus. How did we get to a point in the U.S. where American citizens at the behest of their fucking president are attacking our own democracy? So the book that we wrote, which I'm just a co-author of, is an attempt to kind of explain the cultural forces that have been roiling our culture and our politics and our society for the past decade and before that led us to a point where that could have happened. When do you think that this era of American polarization started? There's a lot of interesting answers to that. You know, like some people would say Trump. Some people would say 
Obama when he was elected, like it brought all this white rage out. Another yeah. answer is the Iraq war. And also like then the natural one is 9-11, right? Yeah. And also Bush versus Gore. And you can go further back, but this consensus that happened after the post-war broke down at some point here. And we've entered into this increasingly catastrophic yeah. sort of series of things. And I think it's really interesting that when I asked you about it, you hit on this January 6th, which was sort of like the culmination of a lot of these. I don't think January 6th is the beginning of anything, although maybe what it is is the beginning of everyone recognizing that the era of everyone getting along and everyone believing, even if we have different politics, believing in like the quote unquote sanctity of the American democracy, the way that maybe boomers would put it, it is over. And I think that maybe it is the beginning of that. But in terms of like, when did this breakdown in U.S. politics happen in this partisanship? I think all the answers that you just said are valid. You know, it's like, if you're going to go back in a causal chain, everything led to one another. But I do think that 9-11 was the absolute sea change for so much in our culture and for in our own lives. I mean, you and I remember it. Totally. And I think about 9-11 all the time, not because I'm like, oh, never again. I'm constantly thinking about 9-11. That's, <laughs> I mean, sorry, that sounds so fucked up. But no, mainly because as I was researching this book, you know, I had to go like way down the rabbit hole into these online communities of really people who have very different values than me, like extremely different. You know, a lot of people who hate women and who fundamentally hate democracy and they hate Jews and people who hate Hollywood. So I'm like the kid of a Hollywood Jewish person, woman who works at Harvard and is a journalist. Like I'm like the ultimate elitist person that they hate. And going down into that rabbit hole, I would hear these things that reminded me so much of when we were kids growing up in Idaho. And we were around so many people in Idaho who had this very intense hatred of city folk. And I think people discredit that now. Like they'll talk about like, oh, there's the coastal elites and then there's the flyover country. And then people are like, oh, that's so fucked up. Like everyone's the same, blah, blah, blah. And that is true. But there is this deep, deep entrenched distrust of elites in parts of rural and red America that like has been there for so long. And I often think about on the day 9-11 happened, 9-11, that was the day. <laughs> <laughs> September 11, 2001. I was late for school because I was always late for school. And so I watched the towers fall before school. And then I drove to school after it happened. And Abby and I informed the English class that we were late to go to that this had just happened. We were like, oh my God, you guys, we just were watching TV before we got here. And like planes hit the towers in New York. And I won't say their names now because they're like adults with lives now, but there were two men who you know, who were boys at the time, who were like, oh, in New York, serves them right. Like, fuck New Yorkers. <laughs> and then what was so interesting, what's so interesting to me is that those two guys were some of the most conservative guys we grew up with. Their actual instinctual reaction when they heard that it was New York was that they laughed and thought it was hilarious and that they deserved it because that's how much in their heart they considered themselves to be not the same people as New Yorkers. That divide is in our book a lot. I remember then going into what I think was a geometry class or something and listening to, which I always think about whenever I think of your beat of you know misinformation, disinformation, which is that the teacher in that class then, which was only a few hours later, started to say, it's either Iraq or it's Osama bin Laden and he then told a story that he must have heard through the internet or secondhand somehow about how Osama bin Laden had promised only weeks ago to do this. This is what's interesting, I guess, is in thinking about like, where do people get their information and how do they trust what information they get? Depends on who they get it from. And like, we were in a very small, very rural school full of a lot of elitist kids and people with like various different values. And I was the class pothead and so was Abby. We were late for school because we were high as fuck. Sorry, this is like, <laughs> cut that out of the podcast, but, or you don't have to, it's whatever, everybody knows that. High as crap. High as AF. <laughs> you know, and I actually, to be honest, I don't think we actually were high, but we often had gone to school high. 
course. in the morning because it was senior year and we... This was a pre-9-11 attitude. Exactly. I used to travel with weed in my pocket, you know, like on an airplane. <laughs> so, you know, there was also reason why these two guys in our class who I'd known since they were kids and who n- knew that like I a, was a good for nothing late for school pothead came in telling this story that I was all worked up about that like with me being their only source and Abby corroborating it, they'd be like, what the hell is this person talking about? You know? And I do recall that then when the TV was wheeled in and we were watching whatever, I guess they had cable that they could hook up. I don't know. But we were watching the news. Then like the mood completely changed. And, you know, like speaking of what you write about on your Substack and like what you are so passionate about, just kind of like how the cultural conversation moves online and how people influence each other to feel certain ways and like gang up on each other and pile on and everything like there was no twitter when 9-11 happened right and so it there was social media there wasn't that intense acceleration of oh okay okay this is how we all feel about it oh this is how my group right. feels about this and so we're going to take this position that hadn't happened yet but then you know the news explained all of it. And I, and then I, I remember that classroom, like immediately erupting into like, we have to go to war. We got to go to, we are, you know, and then there was like the war hawks. And then there were the other people who were like, we don't know what happened yet. But so anyways, that was a long discussion of 9-11, which is just to say that it changed our culture so much. But we pegged the beginning of our book at Occupy Wall Street, actually. And that is because when it comes to meme wars, in the sense of battles launched online intentionally by people trying to get an idea to go viral in order to push their agenda, you really have to be talking about the internet era. And Occupy Wall Street was kind of the beginning of the mainstreaming of social media. And social media is what enabled meme wars to like overtake culture wars in the real world and become you know, like an expression of culture wars online. And so we we started there. And it's so interesting because most of the book, most of the meme wars come from far right folks who are very upset about the liberal consensus, which, as you noted, had already been breaking down since the 80s. But that the mainstream culture is still basically liberal, like neoliberal consensus. So most of the meme wars in the book are people on the far right of the fringe who are upset about that and are pushing back against the mainstream. But it begins with a leftist movement because Occupy was actually a leftist movement and they were upset about neoliberal consensus too because the neoliberal consensus does not work for everybody. Like it literally just does not raise all boats or whatever. And so that's why they were protesting Occupy Wall Street. And then what was so fascinating to me was to go and dig into the all of the films and media that exists from right-wing folks reacting to Occupy. So there's oh, right. movies that like Breitbart made one. Bannon, actually, Steve Bannon produced it. And then Breitbart is like the star and director of it. It's all about painting Occupy as basically Antifa, like what we would now call Antifa, in order to say that like the left is this terrible boogeyman that's coming for you. And so in the book, we kind of argue that Occupy was trying to be a memoir itself. It didn't really work. But what it did do was show the right how to use the internet and how to use media on the internet to organize and push an idea. When I think about Occupy Wall Street, I think about it as a massive failure. I remember it the way that you just said it too. And that is, I think, largely because The Tea Party, like, actually elected people to Congress and the Senate and then created a real, like, there became a Tea Party wing of the Republican Party, whereas Occupy never had, like, institutional support from the Democrats, and they didn't seek it. They didn't want it. And they didn't attempt to run their people for office. In fact, like, one of the, one of the, like, most ridiculous clips John Lewis wanted to support Occupy because, of course, like he believed in a lot of the things that Occupy supported, but they wouldn't let him speak when he showed up to God. He went to an Occupy camp encampment and he wanted to talk and they would not let him speak. And the whole thing, you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. It is just so remarkable. And it is because, you know, they had these really kind of intense rules about who could speak and when and who was allowed to have the platform. And there were, you know, it was like 
you had to have consensus and everyone had to say, yes, we want that voice to be heard. And then they had the human microphone thing. And the idea was supposed to be, you know, if you were someone who would have the opportunity to speak in other places, then you didn't need Occupy to give you a platform. So it was like the most marginalized people, the most silenced people should be able to speak first. So then when John Lewis showed up to like express his support and he wanted to talk, they were like, John Lewis does not need to talk to us. Like he can talk on TV. And so the optics were awful. Like I remember Occupy Wall Street in San Francisco. There was a lot of drum circles going on. And I was like, cool, you know, the hippies are trying to recreate the 60s. And (laughs) I don't know what they're asking for. And when we now look back at the movement, part of what made it powerful, though, was that the demands were not that specific or specific at all. Because then that meant that, like, anyone who felt strongly about income inequality could create an Occupy movement anywhere they wanted that was based on their own specific thing. So it was a global movement. It hit people different, you know, in whatever way they wanted it to, which, but then that allowed for two other things to happen. One, no one knew what it stood for. And so therefore literally no legislation came out of it. Like there was not a thing where they were like, this is our one demand. Although they did say this is our one demand many times. (laughs) 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 And was just to be occupied, occupy this space. And then it also, so it made it hard for it to create any kind of like systemic change in legal terms, but then it also enabled anyone to kind of co-opt the movement and come in and say they were part of it. And so like Alex Jones held an Occupy San Antonio thing. And he also did a very intensely overtly anti-Semitic Occupy staging at the Bilderberg conference, which is like Mm. a global meeting of the anti-Semites are terrified about Exactly, because Bilderberg sounds Jewish, and also anytime global elites are meeting to talk about how to make the world better, they assume that that's the Jewish cabal. And so, like, in 2012, Alex Jones literally did, like, Occupy Bilderberg, and he brought all of his InfoWars crazy people over there, and there was no central leadership of Occupy to say, like, hey, that's not what Occupy is. (laughs) That's not what we're doing. So anyways, it's really interesting. And like learning this shit about the book, like looking into the book, I lived through Occupy, but I didn't pay that much attention to it. I lived through Gamergate, you know, and I covered Gamergate. I published articles by people who had been through it. I was the opinion editor at Wired at the time, but I had never been deep in the bowels of the rooms and the chat rooms and the communities where it was launched and where they, where they decided to do this and what their reasons were. And I have to say, like, what I hope people will get out of this book is that, A, so much of what you see on the surface, like by the time a hashtag is trending or you've heard about it or someone sends you a meme about it, at that point, it's already viral. So much work has gone in, in a lot of cases, to making it viral already. Like a lot of planning has gone in, which... On staging sites. And staging sites and... And in just like groups where you actually, it's not like the dark web. You really can go and join. You're just not, you're not in that conversation generally. And journalists aren't generally paying attention. But in some ways, it's like, it's creepy because you're thinking to yourself, man, like these people are really trying to get this idea out there. They really want me to believe this. This is all very intentional. But on the other hand, it made me feel more empowered because this stuff does not come out of nowhere. It's not like suddenly all these men think that women should not be in journalism. They had real grievances. They had real like issues in their lives. They had real reasons for wanting to do it, which, you know, not that I I agreed with them, but that it wasn't random. And then just also kind of like when you know that this stuff is planned, you can maybe take some of its power away. And Stop the Steal is like such a good example of it because for a lot of people, Stop the Steal as a hashtag and as a movement and even as like as an insurrection itself was like, whoa, whoa, how did that happen? Where did that come from? It's like, okay, well, it came from a lot of very specific places. They laid the groundwork for it four years before when, you know, there was like a lot that goes into it. So I hope that the book will actually empower people to understand that the- Astroturfing. Astroturfing, exactly. Well, astroturfing and like network harassment and all of this stuff. And then also just the way in which all of the allegations that you can't trust what's happening ever have 
you know, and that people like Alex Jones and that Steve Bannon and Roger Stone and Donald Trump and all of these people have said to people, you, you can't trust anyone. You can't trust anything. You're, you're being lied to. How that idea has become so pervasive that it also then lays the groundwork for people to believe whatever the so-called truth teller then tells them. We kind of identify in the book some major players who were the people behind a lot of these meme wars. Like Cernovich is one of them. And Cernovich came out of the Manosphere. He was a really, really big part of the Manosphere culture. And then that's what like catapulted him into Pizzagate. Then, you know, he like rode that wave into becoming an influencer for Trump, who, you know, drove the Trump train and helped him get elected. So in the book, the people like that, who are kind of the um, instigators of these memoirs that we talk about, we refer to the whole group of them as the red-pilled right. People who were red-pilled about an issue. So they like became radicalized against mainstream politics in some way by one specific thing that then kind of sent them down the rabbit hole. And then once they were red-pilled, what that meant was that they had this epiphany, quote unquote, that something that they had thought was wrong and that they had been misinformed about something and now they knew the truth, which made them so angry about having been lied to and so impassioned about the way in which like they could have been living their life according to like someone lying to them, that they then felt and feel a real need to educate other people. And speaking of Trayvon Martin, like when we look at a lot of these folks who are relevant now, who are still meme warriors, who are still out there trying to get people on their side, they will cite the killing, the murder of Trayvon Martin, and then the media's response and the coverage of that case as the time that they got red-pilled. And one of the most interesting things to me researching the book was to go through kind of all of these bigwig, like alt-right folks and far-right folks and MAGA people and listen to their interviews and read their words and their stories to see when do they say they got red-pilled. And most of them reveal their red-pilling. Like Alex Jones says he got red-pilled when Waco happened, that Waco red-pilled him. For a lot of other people, 9-11 was the red pill. Trayvon Martin, then BLM, like Black Lives Matter as a movement was again. Like Ferguson. And Ferguson really, you know, was the thing that people were like, well, now I think whatever. They, it, make, it made them have a complete like 180 reaction about it. It made me realize that there's this thread, this strain of anti-establishmentarianism in our culture now that is deeply positioned against whatever is the mainstream norm. And the mainstream norm is neoliberal progressive. It's not far left. Right. But it is like pro-democracy, pro-diversity, and pro-capitalism in a way that then this strain, and it's a virulent strain. I mean, it's strong. This anti-establishment. I mean, all of the things that you really just mentioned, except for 9-11, arguably, are literally just white supremacist things. Yeah. Well, so like in the when it, when it comes to red pills and people who kind of get red pilled and then go down the rabbit hole and get more and more red pilled, there's kind of a hierarchy of red pills. There's the race red pill, <laughs> which, you know, is often the thing that snares people, like the anti-black race red pill, I mean. Right. Like a lot of white folks get red pilled on anti-black. Or, or uh, what it is is that they'll actually see something that appears to them to be too pro-black. That pisses them off because it upsets their sense of, you know, hierarchy as a white person, usually a white man. And that's the thing that'll red pill them. But then there's after that, there's the also I have to now be red pilled against women red pill. So you get the race red pill first, then you get the manosphere incel. I hate women (laughs) red pill next. And then at the base of all of it, like once people have taken those two, then they get to the most essential one of all, which is the Jew red pill. And the answer, finally, yeah. it was always, it was always there. And, and the <laughs> Jewish red pill, you know, it is racial in some ways, but it also is what it really is about is elitism and the sense that this was why it's like also very conspiratorial, even to just like an- anti-Semitism really breeds conspiratorial thinking because Jews, quote unquote, can look just like the rest of us. And so this right. sense that like anyone could be a Jew. And therefore, like anyone could be 
the evil thing that I don't understand and that has power over me and is the cause of all of my pain. Life. Yeah, that's kind of the final thing. And when we, we have a chapter on QAnon, and it's so interesting, like the people who were pushing the QAnon theory, there's so many folks, you know, but QAnon is really in a way kind of, it was an influencer movement created by influencers who would like take this one cryptic, you know, thing, and then they would decipher it to the masses and bring it out to the masses and say like, this is what it means, blah, blah, blah. And in their conversations on their chat logs and on 8kun and in the forums that they look at, whenever anti-Semitism comes up, they're like, save Israel for last. We'll get to Israel. <laughs> and it literally like, like they're very, they, you know, they're very savvy about how this shit works. They're like, of course, what they mean by that is yes, of course, the Jews, obviously, like, of course they are part of the call. Yeah. Of course the storm is going to come for them, but we don't talk about that yet. Like we talk about that. They're the boss level. Yeah, exactly. And you're not supposed to mention them until we've already gotten over all of these other levels. So that's the other thing that I learned over the course of the writing the book is that I think a lot of journalists, I think a lot of people in the mainstream right and the mainstream left will dismiss like online culture warriors or online influencers who have a political agenda as dumbasses. Like, they'll be like, those dumbasses, like, they don't know how the world works, or they're not pragmatic, they don't get it. Or then, like, the people who they convince of their beliefs, like the people who believe Alex Jones and the people who believe Nick Fuentes and call themselves groipers and QAnon believers, people are like, those people are so dumb. You know, like, only dumb people would think that. And what's crazy is that actually the people behind pushing these campaigns, they are very educated. They know a lot often. And even if it's not about educated, like they're savvy. They know how this stuff works. And they are very adept at critiquing themselves. Like if you go on 4chan's poll, politically incorrect board, where like all of this often gets discussed, there's some really, really biting and trenchant cultural critique in there mixed in <laughs> with the most horrible racism and, you know, sexism and every other kind of ism that there is. I mean, it's terrible. And it's not just cultural critique of others, but it's also of themselves. They'll be like, guys, like this meme war is failing for X, Y, Z reason. You know, you need to have, right. you need to have a violent spectacle if you're going to get people to come into the street. Like what, what's wrong with you? There's this like self-awareness that I did not expect to find. I think that that's a sort of interesting like thing to talk about, which is what the people who are explicitly doing this, like the meme warriors, as you just described, consider success. Oh, yeah, like, I can tell you, you know, so all of the people who are doing this met, have very different agendas. I should say that they're not all coming from the same. They're not like all libertarians or all, you know, Catholic, traditional, whatever, or Nazis. They're not all the same, but there's many different factions of them. And so they do have different goals. And like for Stop the Steal, the goal there was to create a networked faction of all these different people to actually get into the Capitol. And that right. was success. But in general, with these like mini meme wars that get, get launched through a hashtag or whatever, success looks like the media talking about it. When the media talks about it, they won. And in other instances, you know, like for the quote unquote great meme war, as they called it, to get Trump elected, to meme Trump into office. In that case, success looked like getting Trump elected. But along the road to get him elected, there were all of these mini offenses against Hillary Clinton and against the DNC and against people who were against Trump. So like against the Republicans. And any success in that case was just to get the thing to A, trend and B, be spoken about in the media and C, to get the target of the attack to acknowledge the attack. Because right. once Hillary Clinton referred to the alt-right as the basket of deplorables, like, they won the moment she said that. There are these quotes from when they were watching her say that in one of the chat rooms. I think it was actually a certain chat room. And they're like, guys, we're in her head. We're in her head. And right. they just thought, like, they're, now they had succeeded. But it wasn't just that they were in her head. She also had the biggest platform in the world 
as the front runner for the presidency in the U.S. So the second she said that, she made it way more viral. You know, she made the term alt-right viral by spending an entire speech talking about it in Reno when she was on the campaign trail. And it really changed my opinion in some ways, or not that I had an opinion, but it, 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 it was counterintuitive to me that in almost every example that we found where someone was specifically harassed or targeted by a coordinated group of meme warriors to try to make them either look stupid or say something or whatever, in almost every case, when that person acknowledges them, in a public way, it just makes it worse. There's right. very few instances when it makes it better. I do think it's interesting that, like, I remember, you know, Mother Jones covered the alt-right a lot in the run-up to that mm -hmm. election. And I know that they did think that they, you know, they took a lot of credit for it. But, like, also, they, they didn't elect Trump, you know. James Comey elected Trump. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. I wonder what you think, and I know that there's, this is just a counterfactual, but, like, if Trump had lost the Electoral College, mm. which he, you know, came very close to doing and should have done it, James Comey not done it. What do you think happens to that group then where they then don't have this sort of pretend bloody shirt to wave mm. and to give themselves credit for? I mean, you know, I don't think that it would have stopped them at all from continuing on, but I don't know, it would have been a totally different world because I think you're right to say that, of course, the meme warriors did not elect Trump. I don't think that they were wholly responsible for him winning, but I do think they played a big role. I don't know that he could have won without them. He definitely couldn't have won without Comey, but he also might not have been able to right. win without them because they, man, they, they really, really did take control of the media cycle a lot. They made so much of the news be focused on whatever they were doing, even if it was to respond to them or to fact check them. And then they also just created this sense of like playfulness and fun about electing Trump that had been missing from politics as, or maybe it had been present on the left with Obama in the beginning because everyone was like, oh my God, there was, there was so much energy. Right. But it, it put energy on the right that hadn't been there. And then- They gamified it. They gamified it. Yeah. And they made people be like, it was for the lulls. Like folks who were like, I don't know, I don't really right. care about politics, but this guy's hilarious. Or like, let's see what happens. You know, I do think that was real. But had he lost, I think that God, you know, we would have seen so much- rage and anger even more toward Hillary Clinton. Like he won and still there was QAnon and shit that came out after he was already elected to just denigrate and tear down Hillary Clinton because that's how much they hated the fact that, you know, a woman who was also a, an elite Clinton had come so close to being in charge of the world. So I think if she had actually won, holy moly, there would have been intense anti-Clinton campaigns that would have continued. When Biden was running against Trump in 2020, there was like, we had a lot of conversations with Mother Jones about what to do, no matter what, once the election happened, we would have to make an editorial shift. You know, we'd spent four years with Trump basically destroying every beat. Like there were no more beats. Everything was Trump. That was the world. And even if he lost, we would have to go back to remembering beats, finding new things that people cared about, other things. There were some people who would think, you know, there would be another Trump bump for the liberal media. Mm -hmm. But there was another fear that he expressed to me and that I agreed with, which was that if Trump had actually won in 2020 in a fair fight, like yeah. he had just won more votes, that actually liberals would walk into the sea. That like there would be no good end to this story. Like you would have spent all of this time with all this, this terrible person doing all these terrible things. And if he actually got more votes in a fair fight, well... I'm not going to fucking march next week. What's the fucking point? But I do wonder, like, what happened when all of these meme fuckwad peppy dipshits who were all there somewhat for, like, various fringe white supremacy things, but then also just, like, fun lols yeah. and, like, various fuck around stuff. If they had never been told or given the excuse, actually, maybe you can win the presidency, which they actually didn't. I, I still don't think that they actually did yeah. do. But like, they then thought we can take the castle. That like, if maybe they, 
even, even if they had walked into the sea, but that they would have maybe been like, well, let's lower the aims a little bit. We'll just still have fun being terrible. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What did happen, I, this is like such an interesting question and I haven't thought about what would have happened to the alt-right and like people like Richard Spencer and Milo Yiannopoulos and like those folks who had become so influential during that right. campaign. Like what would have happened to them had he lost? I think that they likely would have honestly, like in their personal lives, probably had a much better outcome. Like Milo Yiannopoulos would probably be still employed at Breitbart. And he would be a very like listened to provocative and influential pundit that a lot of people would be listening to. And Richard Spencer also likely would have stayed relevant on the right and have been like a critic on the right. Whereas because they won, they like icarus themselves out of the conversation. They flew too close to the sun. Like both of those people, you know, Spencer and Yiannopoulos were probably the two most important people in the Great Meme War. Then they like patted themselves on the back. They were like, meme magic is real. Like we memed a president into the office. Um, and then immediately Richard Spencer like was way too obviously a Nazi. And people started Heil Hitlering him at in a you know, and it was caught on tape and he got banished. Heilgate, like that was done. And then Yiannopoulos made a joke about Right. What was, was the joke? About, it was that pedophilia? Yeah, right? it, well, it was about the joke was that he was saying that like he had been sexually abused as a kid. And oh, right. then he said something the joke was something along the lines of like, thank you to the priest who did that to me because it made me who I am today. I do think it's so interesting that the way you talk about that, that like the biggest people who suffered from, I mean, this, that's not true. The biggest people who suffered from Trump winning were, you know, all of the refugees a lot of people really suffered able. from it. Yeah. yeah. And stuff like that. But Trump winning fucked up all of his employees. Oh, like yeah. all of his actual campaign staff went to jail. Yeah. Like they all, all this caught the, the like low level, like crimes that they had done that no one would have cared about, suddenly they were not. Oh yeah, I mean, literally, you know, winning a meme war is not good for the meme warriors. It ruins their lives. And and in almost every example in the book, we have where like a meme war is quote unquote successful. (laughs) Like it gets a lot of coverage and it, it ensnares people. Like the people who launched it lose everything. And like, you can look at that. It's true across the board. I mean- Yiannopoulos, you know, he was fired. He lost his book deal. He went into tons of debt. Like now he has rebranded himself as an ex-gay like person. <laughs> Literally, like he he now claims that he isn't gay, that he's Catholic, that um, all of the jokes that he made about having sex with men and also the fact that he had married a man or was like, <laughs> I think he was either married or just like in a long-term partnership with a man that all of that was yeah. wrong. And then he now has a you do not know this. Oh my God. He's, he's um, announcing or he has announced that he is going to create conversion, gay conversion. Oh my God. Centers. Like it's so awful. So, so awful. And it, he's like disavowed his entire personhood, you know? And then look at Alex Jones, like Alex Jones, after all these years, he lost those Sandy Hook lawsuits. He's going to lose right. all his money, everything. You know, Richard Spencer, like his whole goal had been to make... <laughs> like whatever fascism acceptable in Washington. And Spencer is, again, he just got found guilty. He was convicted and found guilty of the violence that came out of Unite the Right in Charlottesville and is going to be, he's going to be hit or maybe they've already announced the damages. But like either way, these people's lives are ruined. And then like Tim GNA, like he was a BuzzFeed employee, you know, he wanted to be a rapper. (laughs) And like Milo and Richard Spencer used to make so much fun of him because he was like a hanger on who wanted to be like the cool kid in the alt-right. And somehow, you know, he managed to continue fighting meme wars throughout all of Trump's presidency. Like when Milo got fired, like, you know, Baked was still there. And what's the result for him? I mean, he got arrested for going into the Capitol on January 6th because yeah. he positioned himself as a citizen journalist and he live streamed himself breaking into the Capitol. <laughs> so like, and he could go to prison for life. I do think it's so interesting just to like the thing about like what makes it successful for them because January 6th is a great example where like 
the plan of getting into the capital, okay, that can be a goal if you want to set it as a goal. And that's like, you can baby step your way there. You can like overcome the barricade and you can break through the window. But like, that's not going to lead to the actual change of Trump. Like that wasn't going to make Trump president again. They can delude yourself into thinking it, but like there was no mechanism for that. It's interesting with like these meme warriors where it's like the goal is just to win a news cycle, but not to win a larger war. Yeah. But so that's the crazy thing, right? Is that as I was looking at this, I'm thinking to myself, like these dumb people, just getting news coverage doesn't make your change happen. Like your president's not going to win just because you dominate the news. But like, to be honest, (laughs) dominating the news does have a huge impact. It really, truly does. And so I don't think people are so off base to think that that is the way it can work. And I mean, in the case of Stop the Steal, like they literally had the president of the nation telling them that if they could do this, he'd win. And so maybe it it didn't make any rational sense. But like there's always an important part of any meme war. He's an idiot, too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and and I think that he's one of those people who's like, you know, if you build it, he will come or whatever. Like positive thinking will make it true. I don't need to read the Constitution. I'll just assume that it'll work in my favor. But They're not crazy to think that being able to dominate the media will then dominate people's opinions and sense of reality. Because the truth is, like, that is what happens. You know, it was Andrew Breitbart who said politics is downstream of culture. And people were like, I don't know about that. But like, that is absolutely true. That's totally true. And where does culture come from? You know, it comes from like the movies that we watch and it comes from the hashtags that we read and it comes from the mobs on Twitter who, you know, try to cancel someone for saying whatever. And so now politics is downstream of like our networked information age that is able to be exploited. But like at the same time, which I totally agree with everything you just said, but at the same time, like Donald Trump's actual approval rating was really consistent throughout his presidency. It never changed. It didn't change when he was impeached. It didn't change yeah. when he went to war. It didn't change when he did anything. Like, it, it never was popular. He was like 39, 40% throughout the whole time. The Democrats didn't succeed in making it less popular. And his fans, like, owning the libs didn't help him win anything. And then, I mean, and now you end up in the situation where, like, Donald Trump is more popular than he's been in years because he's not online. Yeah. He's not around. He's not able to talk and remind people how terrible it is. I mean, I know. You are the person who pointed out to me that, like, the fact that Donald Trump is not on Twitter is why people are able to now talk about him as though he wasn't a crazy person. Because we're not remembering that he used to tweet every thought that came into his brain and they were insane thoughts. When God wants to punish you, he gives you what you want. And, like, Democrats wanting to get him deplatformed, it might have been nice for everyone's psychic health or whatever, but it definitely wasn't better for the political realities of Joe Biden and the Democrats, who now are not being compared against a man who used to tell people to, like, shoot bleach into your neck. Like, (laughs) I I think you're totally right. And I want you to write that all bed. Yeah, I know. I need to get around to it. But, like, also then, like, you see, because I think that it comes back to an interesting thing, which is that, like, if misinformation and disinformation and all of these toxic things are having an effect that are truly bad, like, how do you really deal with that? Like, one of the answers to that is deplatforming, right? Is like stricter moderation yeah. and it's stronger enforcement of these rules. But then there's all these like secondary effects. Yeah. I always used to really get annoyed with people who blamed Facebook for everything yeah. just because Facebook sucks at so much stuff, but it's mostly because it seems like they're just not as good at stuff they don't have they're not as good at implementing things as people want but people like to take it to this idea that like mark zuckerberg is a literal monster who wants to feast on children but then actually like when they do try to enforce a lot of these policies they're really just not good at it and there are these like secondary things and one of them is is, like as you talked about with these sex staging grounds is like trump not being on twitter means that i don't know what donald trump is thinking but Donald Trump and his associates do know. Mm-hmm. And I sort of feel like it would be maybe better for me to know what they were plotting. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I've thought about that a lot as me and Brian and Joan were writing this book. It was really a weird book to write because as a journalist, like I always figured if I wrote a book, it was going to contain a ton of interviews. But I actually didn't really interview anyone for the book because we used all of the found audio and found footage and video and like statements that were already online to recreate this story. And one of the things that like was so clear to me was that all of this stuff had been out there all along. It wasn't like I went and found some secret thing. All of this was there. And a lot of it had been written about by the media in various ways, but then maybe not stitched together in a story that like tells the whole story. And I think that that's really an important thing to remember. And this has always been true. Like there've always been closed doors where people were planning things. You didn't have any insight into it. In the internet age, a lot of those doors weren't really closed. Like if you wanted to listen in on those conversations, you could. And still to this day, like if you really want to monitor what's going on in the U.S. far right, or even like the U.S. politicians who have like anti-globalist agendas and are really trying to push that in other nations, for instance, just listen to their podcast. Like you might not it, <laughs> but they do have a podcast and they are talking about it every single day and they will tell you everything that's on their mind. But it just requires like, you know, monitoring and vigilance in a way that like we don't want to. And I don't know. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about Biden and just what this era, this new post-Trump era in the media feels like. And what are people saying about Biden that he's like the headline killer? Like do not put him in that line. And, you know, I think that for a lot of people, they're like, that means he's not as popular. People don't care about him the way that they cared about Trump. And obviously, I mean, I don't think he's that popular. But I also think in some ways that we as journalists really overestimate what people mean or what the signal they're trying to give us when they read an article. (laughs) Like, Just because they read something doesn't mean they like that person or that they're interested in that person or that they don't care about that person. And just because they don't read it doesn't mean they don't care. Like climate change. You and I used to talk about this all the time. At Mother Jones and Wired, we were both part of that climate desk consortium where like magazines and newspapers would allow each other to run each other's coverage about climate change in an effort to get more climate stories out there. And what was so interesting about it and so depressing was that so often those stories didn't do well, quote unquote. No one read them. No one read them. The metrics we used as journalists to measure the success of a story, which was like readership or how long people were reading it, whenever it was about climate change, the, the numbers were low. And people would then say, like, nobody cares about climate change. And I got to say, I do not think that that follows. Just taking myself as the example. I care about climate change, or at least like I'm worried about it. I know it's serious. I believe in it. I would like governments to take more action to fix it. I also do not want to read about it because I got it. Like, I got the story. I got it. We're fucked. Everything is terrible. It's not like climate change is doing a bad tweet. I need to learn about it. Climate change hasn't done anything today that's going to change my opinion about it. Exactly. And then I think that that's kind of the same with Biden, too. Like, no one's reading stories about Biden. But also, in a way, that's because they're like, we have, I think a lot of people are like, we have a not insane person in office. So now I can stop paying so much attention because I had to be like vigilant and whatever, like in a, a state of readiness to prepare myself for whatever completely unexpected thing could have happened during the Trump era. But now it's like, eh, like boring old guy who... Uh, you know, it seems familiar and whatever. Uh, he's, he, we're going to be fine. I get to go and pay attention to other shit for a while, which like, to be honest, is not the worst thing. Like, I'm happy for people that they're not stressed out about Trump and politics the way that they were before. It's not necessarily great for journalism in the sense that we make our money by how much people read. But like, that's not readers fault. That's the business model. I actually think that you just articulated like the entire essence of my subject really well. Oh. I don't know that it has been good that people, because of Facebook and because of Twitter, have become so politicized that they are, and cable news, obviously, that like they're freaked out about it all the time when they have no agency to really change it. Yeah. And that it hasn't necessarily made our outcomes better, but it's definitely made people's psychic health worse. And like you can see it in all these studies about their sleep bad and gaining weight, can't 
can't your heart problems everything according to yeah like it's everyone is sad all the time and like it hasn't made outcomes better like there's no you're not getting anything for your money yeah what is your solution to any of this nobody said i had to have a solution (laughs) okay no that's fine that's 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 the most honest answer you can have i don't have one and i certainly can say that I mean, I'm really sorry that I don't have one, but I, the answer is definitely not that like every individual person has to figure it out for themselves and that like we all need to be better news consumers, which is, I think, the answer that a lot of people will give. They'll be like, media literacy. Right. Those, are, those are meaningless answers. I mean, media literacy is great, but you know what? Like the, the most media literate people in the world cannot contend with like systems and uh, infrastructure that is like, stacked against them to make them misinformed. So I I don't know. We need a whole hog structural change. And maybe we need like a reimagining of how people get informed. And I think, I do also think in some ways we as journalists and gatekeepers need to begin really, really, really realizing that the level of distrust for us, toward us, and like media distrust is so intensely strong that we're not going to win people back and educate them and like tell them the things that they need, they need to know. And misinformation ha- has been around forever. Like we've always had misinformation. People have always been wrong about stuff, you know, without having nefarious intent or they heard the wrong thing and now they're repeating it. It's just that we have this fucking world now where we get information instantly and it spreads instantly and it can go viral instantly. And that, I don't know. I mean, how do we counteract the instantaneousness? But like, is one consequence of instantaneousness is that it also overwhelms you with another barrage of other instant bullshit. Right. And it's one of like the old things about Twitter, right? Is that like whatever happened on Tuesday, no one remembers by Thursday because it's all just, there's so much. I mean, I think that's why everyone in the world thinks that they have ADD. Like we don't all have ADD. We all are too much online. We're sick. And even the people who are online, like Seth, my husband, your brother-in-law, he's not online that much, but like, he's just as brain sick because he hears about it from me. It seeps into- Right. It has trickle down. Totally. totally. Like trickle down economics is not real, but trickle down internet brain sickness is. What happens on the internet does not stay there. No. Uh, Do you love me or Harry more? That's fucked up. You don't have to answer that one. And on that note, <laughs> Emily's book, Meme Wars, will be coming out. September 20th, 2022. When can they pre-order it? Right now. You can pre-order it right now. And please, please do. Because apparently pre-orders are what determine whether it'll be a success. And I'll get to write another book. Perfect. All right, Em. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Thanks for having me, brother. I hope you have me on again. I will many, many times. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you didn't hate this, check out my Substack at bendreyfus.substack.com. And if you don't know how to spell Ben Dreyfus, just give it a try on Google. It'll come up. And if you did hate this, well, keep that opinion to yourself. See you next time. <laughs>